Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Tuesday, February 26, 2013, and we are very pleased to welcome back our friend Ira Fistel to continue his program series of lectures on the history of the America Railroad Part Two. Ira, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Uh, actually, I'm going to change the way you put that because what we're going to talk about is not so much the history of the American Railroad, but the history of the American Railroads and their impact on the history of the United States. And it is overwhelming. Uh, the importance of the railroads in this country is, cannot be uh, underestimated. The only country in the world, perhaps, where railroads may have been as important or more important is Canada, and for the same reasons. Uh, I'm going to ask you tonight to uh, go back to where we were last week when we covered the beginnings of railroading in the United States uh, from 1829 and uh, 1831 and, uh, onward. Uh, there were no such things as railroads in the world prior to 1829 and in the United States prior to 1831. I'm going to go back a little further. I'm going to go back to Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. And there's a reason for this. It'll become clear as I talk. Jefferson uh, made the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 when Napoleon decided that without his colony in Haiti, uh, wasn't worth France's time and effort to keep its territories in North America. And so Napoleon made an offer. He was willing to sell to the United States government the entire Louisiana Territory. Now Jefferson had been interested in buying the city of New Orleans from France. Why did he want New Orleans? Well, this takes us to the geography of the United States, and you cannot ever understand history without reference to geography. In the United States, the North American continent, there are four major mountain ranges, all of which run basically north and south, the Appalachians, the Rockies, the Sierras, and the Coast Range. Uh, all of them are north-south ranges. There are three or four major river systems, the most important of which is the Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, and all of the tributaries. Uh, the Mississippi and the Ohio and the Missouri collectively drain the whole center of the continent, everything between Appalachians and the Rockies. The uh, Rio Grande and the Colorado uh, river systems that uh, rise in the Rockies and flow into the Gulf of Mexico, in the case, uh, not in the Gulf of Mexico, I'm sorry, the Gulf of California. Um, and then the Sierras, of course, are in, in the state of California, cut off the Central Valley from the east, and then the Coast Range cuts off the Central Valley from the Pacific Coast. All of these mountain ranges are primarily north and south, and the river systems flow primarily between the mountain ranges and primarily north to south. There's one great exception. The Red River of the North flows north from South Dakota, North Dakota, into Canada, and flows into Hudson's Bay. But that's the only major North American river that flows north for any distance. And there are no major river systems in the United States that flow east and west because east and west you run into mountains. But the closest you come is the Tennessee, for example, or the Cumberland, which flow from east Tennessee and uh, the mountains, West Virginia, that, that area, and eventually wind up into the Mississippi. But uh, they're east-west after a fashion, but they're also north-south. But you don't have any major river system flowing east and west because of the north-south running mountain ranges. Okay, now what does all this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, when Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States in 1803, the American English colonies 
were squeezed in between the Appalachian Mountains and the Atlantic coast. There was virtually no white settlement by Englishmen west of the Appalachian Mountains. What settlements by Europeans that there were in the center region of the country were primarily by the French. Why? Because the French found a pathway into North America through the St. Lawrence River, which, as you know, flows through Canada, and then up the Great Lakes and down the Mississippi River's uh, tributaries, the Kankakee, the Illinois, uh, the Wisconsin, the Fox, into the Mississippi. And as early as, I believe it was 1760-something, La Salle had explored as far down as Arkansas. Marquette and Joliet had been down it also, and eventually reached the mouth of the Mississippi, and I think it was 1711 that New Orleans was founded at the mouth of the Mississippi. All right. Before the uh, invention of steam power, the only ways you could move people and goods were overland by animal power or human power, just by walking or animal power. But on water, you could move with the current in a boat. And against the current, it became much harder because you had to push the boat against the current by manpower. But downriver, anyway, you could float goods, and you could float heavy goods, and you could do it very cheaply. So for the entire history of human, uh, the human race, up until 1800 or so, the only transportation options you had were water power, uh, water, waterways, and animal power, and human power. And all of a sudden, that changed because the invention of the steam engine, and we talked about James Watt and the steam engine and in the middle of this 18th century, changed everything. For the first time, there was a power source available that could move goods and people and services over long distance at relatively high speed. And it took about oh, maybe 50 years or so for the steam engine to be applied to the boat. And that was the first place that steam power uh, took its place. All of a sudden, steam power meant you could go upriver on a steamboat as well as downriver. And a one-way river, you know, one-way transportation, suddenly became capable of two-way transportation. You could go upstream with the power of a steamboat. That, was, that began with uh, Robert Fulton and the Claremont. Um, Fulton was a New York inventor, and his Claremont went upstream from New York to Albany and proved that you could go up a river against the current efficiently with a steamboat. Well, it wasn't long after the Claremont sailed the Hudson that New York steamboat interests, headed by a man named Nicholas Roosevelt, an ancestor of the Roosevelt family that later produced two presidents. Nicholas Roosevelt built the first steamboat on what was going to be the great inland waterway, the Ohio River and the, Pennsylvania, and the Mississippi River. The boat was called the Pennsylvania. It was built in Pittsburgh. And in 1811, Nicholas Roosevelt and his wife sailed down the river, down the Mississippi, on a steamboat and got caught in the great New Madrid quake in 1811. Uh, the boat survived, and they got down to New Orleans eventually, and then came back up the river to Pittsburgh. Well, that was a revolution. Steam power on the Mississippi. But from 1809 to 1829, the only use for steam power and transportation was by water. Beginning with the invention of the steam locomotive, particularly in England with George Stevenson and the rocket, the steam locomotive suddenly made it possible to transport goods by rail on overland over the ground. 
And by 1831, uh, steam locomotives had been introduced to the United States. Talked about this last week. Now, to give you an idea of how rapidly the application of steam power to the rails developed, in 1832, there were 23 miles of steam-powered track in America. Eight years later, there were 1,800 miles. By 1850, there were 9,000 miles. And by 1860, 30,000 miles of rail had been laid, and locomotives were running 30,000 miles, uh, 30, miles of track. An amazing construction. In only 28 years, from 23 miles to 30,000. Okay? Now, how was all this accomplished, and what's the significance of it? Well, getting back to Jefferson, when Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase, he said it will take a 1,000 years before the Trans-Mississippi West is fully settled. Well, he was wrong by about 950. <laughs> because he did not know at the time he made the Louisiana Purchase about the power of steam and what it was going to do. So when Jefferson died in 1826, there still had not been a railroad built in, in the world, a steam-powered railroad. But within 25 years of his death, there were thousands of miles of track in America. And what the steam locomotive did, coupled with the railroad, was to reverse the natural course of geography in North America. If you look at North America, the four mountain ranges going north and south and the valleys in between with the great river systems, you would think that the great divisions in the country would be the four mountain ranges. East of the Appalachians is where the British were. In between the Appalachians and the Rockies, the settlements were French. Southwest, um, you know, there was no uh, white settlement in the northwest then. But southwest, the settlements were Spanish coming up from Mexico. And that's also true of the southern part of California. And guess who was up north um, in northern California? A Russian colony. There's the Russian River in Northern California and the town of Sevastopol, and that's not an accident. There actually were Russian settlers there, not in great numbers, but Russia claimed that part of the continent. And north of everything were the British again up in Canada. So that if Jefferson had not made the Louisiana Purchase when he did, it's quite possible that the United States would have become an eastern coastal nation but never moved across the continent because the French and the Spaniards and the Russians were in the way. Okay? But when uh, Jefferson bought Louisiana and the French were expelled from the center of the continent, that opened the gate to go west. And all that was necessary was the means of transportation. And lo and behold, within three years of Thomas Jefferson's death, the steam locomotive was invented. And the reverse, reversal of geography began. The United States began to become a transcontinental nation by surmounting the barriers of the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River Valley and the Rockies and the Sierras. And by 1869, 43 years after Thomas Jefferson's death, railroad tracks spanned the continent all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. It was an enormous undertaking. And it was the, the space program of the 19th century. I'll talk a lot about this uh, today. But the point I want to make is that the steam locomotive and the railroad made the United States, made it possible for the United States of America to become a transcontinental country, and took off from Jefferson's purchase of Louisiana into the trans-Mississippi West, across the Great Plains, across the deserts, across the mountains, and down to the Pacific Coast. It could never have been done in a thousand years. 
as Jefferson thought. But it was done in 43 after Jefferson's death because of the steam engines. And what else did the steam engine do in reverse geography? Well, what was the major split in the country in 1861? Between the east and the west? Nope. It was between the north and the south. Why was it between the north and the south? Because the northwest, the area uh, drained by the Mississippi, west of the Appalachians, had become tied to the east coast by the medium of railroads and steamboats. And the southern area, which would have been uh, naturally, geographically allied with the uh, Great Lakes center of the nation, became itself an east-west transcription from the coast to the east coast uh, to the Mississippi Valley and west across the Mississippi into Arkansas and Texas and down as far as the Mexican border. So that in the period between 1803, when Louisiana Territory was purchased by the United States, and 1861, a mere 58 years, the east and west had become joined in both the north and the south, and consequently, instead of having a east-west split, as you would normally have had in the 18th century, or you know, before the steam engine, you had an east-west alliance in the north and an east-west alliance in the south fighting each other, instead of east-west, each fighting west and uh, in the uh, northern part of the country, and east fighting west in the south. So the steam locomotive and the steamboat changed everything. And they happened along at just the right moment in the history of the United States. Had the steam locomotive not been invented in 1829, let's say it wouldn't, hadn't been invented until 1859, the whole history of the North American continent would have been completely different. And it's very likely that you would have at least three and possibly four or more different nations in what is now the United States. There would have been New England and the English-speaking colonies on the seaboard. There would have been New France, with probably its capital in New Orleans or St. Louis, in the center of the country. There would have been Spanish America in the southwest and in the, the, on the west coast, Russian America in the north Pacific coast, and maybe more British America in the Oregon and Washington territory. So that we're talking about an at literally earth-shaking period of years, and the power behind it was the power of the steam locomotive and the steam steamboat. Now, this is American history, as you not usually hear it taught, but this is the way American history should be taught, because it is the history of the continent and how it developed and why it did, when it did, and why not earlier or later. All right, now I'm going to get on with that from asking some questions about, and uh, answering some questions about what the railroad revolution did and how it did it. All right, first of all, how were all those thousands of miles of track built? Where did the resources come from to build all that uh, 50,000 miles of track that were in place, or 30,000 miles that were in place by the time of the Civil War? Well, it certainly wasn't financed in the uh, economy, of the, the uh, early economy of the United States. The capital to build many of those lines came from Europe. It came first from England and Holland. Holland was a major supplier of capital to America, uh, as well as England. Later, France and especially Germany produced a lot more capital. Where did the labor come from to build all those miles? After all, the United States has always been a country in which labor is at a premium relative to the area of land and the number of resources. Labor is a high cost in America. For, by contrast, in a country like China, labor was a low-cost item. You could hire a coolie for a couple of pennies a day. In the United States, you couldn't do that because labor was a short supply. 
and the price of labor, therefore, was higher. So where did the labor come from? Well, in 1840, there was a, a famine in the nation of Ireland, the British, at that point, British protectorate, uh, British possession. And it wasn't a famine that was uh, natural in the sense that there was other things to eat in Ireland by, uh, other than potatoes, which were the crop that was affected. But the English landlords saw to it that all the grain that was grown in Ireland was sent to England for sale. And the Irish peasant had nothing to eat but potatoes. And when the potato crop was blighted and failed, their population of Ireland in 1840 was 8 million. You know what it is today? Half that. It's the only major country in the world where the population is half the size today than it was 150 or 200 years ago. Where did all those Irishmen go? Well, a lot of them came to North America, to Canada and to the United States. And what did they do when they got here? Well, <laughs> they found laboring jobs. They were strong men. They were not afraid to work. And they had a huge advantage over any other labor in the sense that they came cheaper because they were new immigrants and they spoke English, which made it possible for them to communicate much more easily. And as a result, Irish labor became extremely important in this country after 1840, particularly in the eastern half of the country. But when you get to California, there weren't any Irishmen, or very few comparatively to the East Coast. And what labor was available? Well, there wasn't a lot. So when it came time in 1860 to build the Transcontinental Railroad, where did the Western builders of the line, the big four of the Central Pacific, go to get labor across the Pacific Ocean to China? And they brought thousands of Chinese laborers to North America to alleviate the labor shortage and build the western part of the Transcontinental Railroad. That's the origin of the 19th century Chinese-American population. They were brought from China deliberately because there was a shortage of, of uh, European labor in the western side of North America. All right, we're getting closer and closer to talking about the Transcontinental Railroad project, but I'm not going to do it yet. I'm going to talk about some other things first. In 1844, an artist named Samuel Morse invented a system for tapping electric, electric uh, impulses over copper wires over a long distance, and he called it telegraph. Tele means far, long distance in Greek. Graph means right. So a telegraph was actually a system for transmitting writing from one location to another by electricity and over copper wire. Well, the telegraph was an enormously important invention. For the first time ever, it was possible for one part of a country to communicate with another part of a country or another country instantaneously because the speed of electricity is the speed of light. And it was no longer necessary to have a, a long-distance runner carry the message on a horseback or, or on foot. You know, Philippides, uh, the original marathoner, got his name, uh, Marathon, because uh, the Battle of Marathon was being fought 25 miles from Athens, and he was the designated runner who came, uh, was sent to Athens to report that the Greeks had won the victory against the Persians. And, of course, he rose into Athens and he yells, victory, and keels over and dies. Well, the telegraph made Phidippides uh, outdated. <laughs> it also did other things. Charles Minot, M-I-N-O-T, Charles Minot, for whom Minot, North Dakota is named, was a superintendent on the Erie Railroad. The uh, Erie Railroad was built between New York, Hudson River, and the... Uh, Port of Lake Mary, uh, Port of Buffalo on Lake Erie. Um, and I think it actually wasn't Buffalo. I think it was uh, Oswego first. One of them. But anyway, anyway uh, it was built across the New York State a long way. 
And the Erie uh, was built to a gauge of five, uh, five, five, no, six feet, I think, six feet. I remember I talked about gauges last week. Well, Charles Minot was a superintendent on this line. Now, the big problem with running a railroad was if you only had one track, you had to have places where trains could meet. And a train would take a side track for the train going the other direction. What happens if a train doesn't get to the meeting place when it's supposed to? Well, there's no way of knowing where it is, so the other train just sits and waits. And it may wait hours. It may even wait a day or two days or three days. Who knows? Mr. Minot had an inspiration. He was riding a train on the Erie one day, and it was supposed to meet another train at some designated siding. And when it got there, the other train wasn't there. Mr. Minot was in a hurry, and he had an inspiration. There was a telegraph office there, and he went to the telegraph office and ordered the telegrapher to send a message to the next telegraph office up the line, some 20 or 30 miles or whatever it was, telling the train, if it had gotten there yet, to wait there. And if it had gone already, his train would wait for it. Well, the train had not gotten there yet, and so Minot instructed the engineer and the conductor on his train to go ahead. Well, they were flabbergasted. They thought he was sending them to sure death. Where's that other train? We haven't met it. It's supposed to be here. Minot said, go. I'm the boss here. <laughs> and from that inspiration came the system of telegraphy along each railroad, and wires were strung, and the telegraph instruments were installed in every town, every station, and trains could be dispatched from a central location by means of telegraphy. telegraphy. And it speeded up the operations enormously, and it made it possible to build a single track line with reasonably uh, more than half the capacity of a double track line because you had a system for moving trains to the necessary meeting points with a minimum of delay. It was a revelation. And from that was developed the American system of dispatching trains on railroads. The English system and the continental system are different. In England, you had a series of uh, signal boxes every few miles with an operator in every box and he would be t informed by a bell when the next train was coming, and he would have the choice of what to do with it, to send it on or keep it on his sidetrack. Well, in America, it was all done centrally by telegraph. And a code called the Standard Code of Operations developed for all the railroads of North America, north, south, wherever they were. Actually, Part of the code involved numbering trains. Every train was identified by a number. And in order to identify immediately trains going east uh, as apart from trains going west, westbound trains were assigned odd numbers. And eastbound trains were assigned even numbers. So that if a train were going from, say, uh, Buffalo to New York, it would be number two, number four, number six, number eight, whatever. If a train were going from New York to Buffalo, it would be number five, number nine, number 13, number 23, etc. An odd number. From that, we have a, a development that lasts to this day, and it's the easy way to remember it. Anybody here know the streets of Manhattan, how they're numbered? All the streets in Manhattan that are one-way streets, which is most of them, are numbered uh, one, you know, one up through 200, whatever it is. But all the streets that are eastbound only have even numbers. And all the streets that are westbound one way have odd numbers. So if you're in the corner of 47th and Broadway, you know 47th is a one-way street going west. At uh, 52nd and Broadway, 52nd is a one-way street going east. 
And this all came from the standard code uh, and the development of the system of dispatch and transit in North America. All right. Now, the construction of all those 30,000 miles of track by 1860 had a big impact on the American economy. First of all, I mentioned importing capital and importing labor. The railroads were a huge stimulus to both, importing European capital to build the lines and importing labor to physically build and operate the lines. But it had other impacts, too. At first, there was a huge demand for wood to be burned in the fireboxes of steam locomotives. And whole forests of wood were cut down to make uh, steam for steam engines and steam boats. Turned out after a while that wood was not the best fuel. You could get hotter fire, uh, more, more uh, boiling water, faster by using coal. There are two kinds of coal that are common in North America. Anthracite, which is by far the less common, but is uh, clean burning and uh, makes very good fuel. Anthracite is mined in the mines in Pennsylvania primarily. Bituminous, which is soft coal, is dirtier, but much more common and much easier to, to find. Locomotives were built to burn anthracite or bituminous, and by the time of the Civil War, coal had replaced wood as the primary locomotive fuel. And that's the origin of the great coal mining industry in North America, which today, to this day, is still our number one source of domestic energy. Not that we burn coal in locomotives anymore, uh, certainly not, and we don't burn coal in home furnaces anymore. We don't heat our houses with coal burned that way. Where does the coal go? To make electricity. Huge amounts of coal are mined, carried hundreds and thousands of miles by rail and boat to the power plants and turned there into electricity by burning the coal, heating water, turning generators, and producing electricity. And while there's an environmental problem with coal, because there is no such thing yet as, quote, clean coal, uh, it does produce the vast majority of our electric energy. Well, now natural gas is just beginning to supplant it. Stevenson T-rail coal industry got a huge stimulus from the railroad. What does a train run on? Well, it runs on rails. And what are the rails made of? Well, very soon, uh, they've experimented with numbers of different kinds of rails, including wood rails with straps of iron uh, you know, bolted to them. Uh, that proved to be not so satisfactory. Uh, various shapes of iron rails, a U-shaped rail. You know, uh, The one that won out was the Stevenson T rail. Actually, it looks more like a capital I than a T, but uh, the top of the rail is wider than the the uh, stem below it, and the whole and the bottom of it is flat. That T rail, or capital I, if you think of it that way, is the standard rail of North America and has been since oh back uh, around maybe 1840, 1850. All right? How do you make the rail? Well, you made it out of iron to begin with. Iron ore can be found in a number of places in North America. Uh, there are actually some iron ore in Virginia. Virginia had smelters at one time. Uh, but the major deposits of iron ore here in this country are in Minnesota, uh, the Iron Range, north of St. Paul, Minnesota. And iron became the fuel, uh, not the fuel, but the tool that railroads ran on. Now, where do you smelt the iron? Well, to smelt iron, you need a lot of heat. And where do you get the heat from? You get it from coal. However, iron is more valuable than coal, and it's heavier. It's harder to move. So you find that in the 19th century, a pattern grows up. You can spot where a steel mill or an iron mill is going to be iron first, steel later. You can see where it's going to be because the mill is located between the coal and the ore. With about two-thirds of the distance uh, for the ore, 
being covered by uh, the ore and one-third of the distance covered by the coal because that's the most efficient way of doing it. You can move large amounts of coal cheaper than you can move large amounts of ore. So iron ore and coal got together, and where was that place where iron ore and coal were most uh, used, most got together to make iron? Pittsburgh. Why Pittsburgh? Because the iron could come by boat from Minnesota, the Iron Range, down the Great Lakes to the port in northern Ohio, that are 60 or 70 miles from Pittsburgh, and then by rail into Pittsburgh. The coal comes from Pennsylvania and West Virginia and comes a shorter distance by rail, but there's so much more of it uh, that requires a, a lot of land transportation. And Pittsburgh became America's great iron center even before the Civil War. Iron is not the best possible ma uh, material for making rail, however, because iron is uh, easily bent and sometimes it's, uh, it flaws, has it flaws in it. So in 1860, I think it was two or three, in England, Sir Henry Bessemer invented the Bessemer converter, which is a egg-shaped machine where you blow air through the hot iron and blow the, imp the uh, imperfections, the flaws, out of it and make steel. Steel is much tougher than iron, and it lasts longer, and it's harder. And steel became the great rail material after the Civil War. But don't let anybody tell you about steel rails before the Civil War, because there wasn't any. Uh, there were no steel rails until after the Civil War. So the iron and steel industry gets a huge boost, boost from the railroads, not only because of building track, but because of building locomotives and cars. You can build the car body out of wood, but the wheels and the axles and the you know, undercarriage has to be made of something stronger than wood. It has to be made of iron or steel. And locomotives, of course, with a boiler, have to have an iron or steel boiler and steel wheels and whatever. So the iron industry and the coal industry are two huge industries that owed their onset, uh, owed their um, development to the rail, the railroad. Also, copper. You know, we talked about all those miles and miles of copper wire that uh, the telegraph demanded. Well, the copper came from northern Michigan. Uh, it's called the iron and copper country to this day. Iron ore came from there, along with Minnesota, and the purest copper in North America. In fact, I think it's called the purest in the world. All came from northern Michigan. By one of those great ironies of history, you know, if you look at a map, the northern peninsula of Michigan is geographically part of Wisconsin, not part of Michigan at all. But because of a strange set of circumstances involving the Port of Toledo, the state of Ohio wanted the Port of Toledo to remain in Ohio. The state of Michigan wanted that port on the Great Lakes. And the, the two states almost came to blows over it. That's one reason why Ohio State and Michigan are arch enemies today in football, because of the old Toledo War. Well, anyway, Congress settled it by giving Toledo to Ohio, but making Michigan happy by giving Michigan more territory that should have been Wisconsin's. And within a few years, it turns out that that part of northern Michigan with that tremendous uh, copper mining industry that developed there and the iron ore industry that developed there became far more valuable than the port of Toledo ever could have been. And Michigan was the source of copper and iron, and one of the sources of iron ore, for 100 years. And because of that traffic and the grain traffic coming from Lake Superior, the Sioux locks where Lake Superior and Lake Huron come together became the busiest locks in the world, far busier than Panama or Suez or any place else. And the Sioux locks, right up until my time, were the busiest locks in the world. I don't know if they still are, but they might very well be. 
So all this has to do with the railroad industry. Okay. Now it's 1860, and the war comes. The Civil War in the United States broke out uh, with firing on Fort Sumter in December of 1860. First land battle took place the following summer. The Civil War was called the First Modern War, and it was, because in the, what was it, 50 years or so since the Napoleonic Wars, a new dimension had been added, and that dimension was the railroad. In Napoleon's days, the only way you could move an army any distance was on foot, or in wagons, and then uh, that was hard to do. Uh, that also meant that where there were no roads, it was difficult to move an army. In the Revolution, it took the British months to try to uh, march up the Hudson Valley uh, because they had to march through uh, forests and there were no roads. Um, when the railroad was developed, all of a sudden it was possible to move not only thousands of men, but also tons and tons and tons of material, munitions, food, armaments, long distances, fast. The Civil War was the great testing ground of modern warfare. And everything that has been done since actually rests on what was done first in the Civil War. And the Civil War was a railroad war. Don't think any different because it was. And I'll tell you, give you an example. The very first land engagement of the Civil War was the first Battle of Manassas. Manassas is a little town about 30 miles southwest of Washington. Why was this otherwise insignificant little town uh, even important? Well, because Manassas had become the junction point of two railways. One, the line that ran from northern Virginia down towards Richmond, and two, a line that went west from Manassas towards the Shenandoah Valley. Okay, the Southerners chose Manassas as the site of their fortifications because if a Union army came marching down from Washington, they could call reinforcements in from the Shenandoah Valley by rail quickly. The Union targeted Manassas as the junction point, which if they could, if they could capture it and hold it, they could keep the Confederacy from combining two armies at that spot. So the town of Manassas became the target because it was a railroad junction. And the battle was won, in fact, by troops coming by rail from the Shenandoah Valley to support the Confederacy. No textbook lesson was ever so obvious. And, and throughout the rest of the war, the railroads determined who got where when and uh, in what, what uh, force. The North actually, during the war, created the U.S. Military Railroad Service, headed by a former executive from the Pennsylvania Railroad whose name was Herman Haupt. And he was a genius at transportation. The Northern Military Railroads accomplished incredible feats. Uh, late in the war, when General Johnson's army, the Confederate Army, was moving north from South Carolina and North Carolina towards Virginia, the Union Army was chasing them. And Jackson's men destroyed all the bridges and all, uh, you know, everywhere that uh, they could tear up track, they tore up track. And the Union railroaders built the track and bridges back as fast as the Confederates could destroy it. And Johnson was quoted as saying, there's not been an army like this since Julius Caesar. There's no hope for us. Well, it wasn't only the army. It was the way the army was able to move and the way the army was able to move that fast and those numbers with those supplies is because of the railroads. The Union had a huge base at City Point from which the siege of Richmond was conducted by rail transportation from the ships from the north that would come to City Point and the goods would transfer to rails and the rails would take it to the, uh, the front lines and the siege of Richmond went on for whoa, more than a year. All right, there are all kinds of examples. One of the uh, classic ones was the one time the Confederacy got into the act, 
1863, uh, the Confederates had basically two main armies, one west of the Appalachians and one east. Now, by that time, the main railroad line between the Western Confederacy and the Eastern Confederacy had been broken and was occupied by Union troops. That was a line that went through Mississippi and Tennessee. General Longstreet had one corps of Robert Lee's army in Virginia, and Braxton Bragg had the other Confederate army in Georgia and uh, near the Tennessee border. Bragg saw that he had an advantage over the opposing Union army. He outnumbered them, and he had a strategic advantage. And the Confederacy decided to go for the knockout blow in the West. This was after Gettysburg. Now remember, Gettysburg had already been fought, and the Confederacy had lost at Gettysburg. Lee had refused to allow any of his army to be sent West to capture, to hold Vicksburg. Now, Lee, after the defeat of Gettysburg, saw that this war was not a regional war to be fought only in Virginia. It was a war that had a continental scope. And so he allowed Longstreet's Corps to be detached from his army, sent by rail all the way down into North Carolina and all the way down almost to the Gulf Coast, to Mobile, and then back north again up into uh, Tennessee and, and Georgia. Uh, and also to the Tennessee border to support Bragg's army. And Longstreet's troops made that trip, uh, I think it was something like 400, 500 miles on flat cars, and uh, with all the trains the Confederacy could put at their, at their disposal, and got there in time for the Battle of Chickamauga, which the Confederates won on the field, but lost strategically uh, because they lost so many men and because Bragg was not Lee and uh, didn't know what to do when he followed, uh, to follow up the defeat, uh, the defeat of the Northern Army. Anyway, there was a major troop movement over hundreds of miles by rail and by an out-of-the-way movement because the main line had been already severed and the Confederacy pulled it off. Union used troop movements like that frequently uh, to concentrate troops at the right place at the right time. So the war had a lot to do with railroads, and railroads had a lot to do with winning the war. Okay, uh, one example of why the Confederacy did not have the means to match the Northerners in the, in the Civil War was because it didn't have the material to build locomotives, to turn out lots of rail uh, telegraph wire and all that. They didn't have the means to do it. Uh, also, the Confederate rail lines were all piecemeal. There were five lines that ran into Richmond, and none of them connected with any of the others. They had to build track in the streets of the city of Richmond in order to move trains from one line to another. So those are examples of why the North, with an organized railroad system, headed by a general who knew what he was doing, uh, and with all the resources of the northern industries behind them, the ability to make rails and build locomotives and build cars, the north had a huge advantage, not only in manpower, but a huge technological advantage in winning the war. So what happens right after the war? You know the song that uh, the Irish workers used to sing? Um, it was called, in 1861, they put Mikorri breeches on. I put me corner breeches on to work upon the railway. It's an Irish melody, and it was sung by Irish workers about building the transcontinental railway. The railroad was designated to begin by Abraham Lincoln. The gauge was designated by Abraham Lincoln. But the survey was done under Lincoln by General Grenville M. Dodge. Uh, General Dodge was an active Civil War general, but he was also an outstanding engineer, and he was the one who explored the West to find the best line to the Pacific. And the route he chose was up the Platte River, um, the South Platte River, up to the point where it turns north the uh, south at uh, Julesburg, Colorado, and then northerly into Wyoming. Why didn't the line go through Denver, which had already been established? Well, because west of Denver, 
the mountains of the Rockies are the most impenetrable that they are anywhere. The highest mountains and the most steep hills are directly west of Denver. In Wyoming, General Dodge found a pass that was only 8,000 feet relative to 9,000, 10,000, or 11,000 feet in Colorado. And he routed the Union Pacific through Wyoming and then down into Utah, uh, across the Wasatch Range, and into the Salt Lake Valley. That was the route that was followed beginning when the construction started in 1866, roughly. And the labor that became available were largely former Union and former Confederate soldiers. Before, they'd been shooting at each other, and now they were working side by side, hammering down the spikes and laying the rails that uh, would cross the Indian reservations and uh, Indian territory and reach eventually the Pacific Coast. Meanwhile, the Union Pacific was building the eastern part of that line, headquartered in Omaha, as it still is, by the way. It's, uh, it's Union Pacific is still in Omaha. Uh, on the western end, the survey had been made by a man named Theodore Judah, who had the inspiration of seeing that a railroad to California could be built over the Sierras. Nobody thought it was possible. They called him Crazy Judah. But he came up with an alignment that was possible. He was forced out of the company very soon by the quartet known as the Big Four of California. Leland Stanford, Collis P. Huntington, Charles Crocker, and Mark Hopkins. All four of them left their mark on California to the point where to this day it's almost impossible to think of California without thinking of them. Uh, they were all in Sacramento. They had a meeting over Mark Hopkins' hardware store one night and they organized the Central Pacific Railway for the purpose of building eastward out of California over the Sierras and meeting the Union Pacific someplace east of the Sierra Mountains. Now, the federal government put up support for these two companies. The federal government did not build the Transcontinental Railroad itself. It financed the companies that built the line. And this uh, <laughs> was a controversial thing. Uh, it involved a major scandal in, in the East Coast, the eastern part of it, and a number of lesser but still scandalous uh, activities in the West. What the government did was to set aside land on each side of the tracks, alternate sections on each side of the tracks, and gave it to the constructing companies. And they could sell it and use the money to build the tracks. Well, the Central Pacific uh, said, well, we have a tougher job. We've got to build over the Sierras. You need to give us more than $16,000 a mile. Uh, we need $64,000 a mile. Well, the federal government said, okay, guys, uh, we know you've got a tough job there, and you uh, have to climb up this mountain range, and uh, it's only fair that you get more money. So for every mountain mile, we'll give you $64,000 of land instead of 16000 well, the Central Pacific said fine, and then designated flatlands around Sacramento as mountain miles, and the federal government paid off. Uh, the, the Union scandal was something called the Crédit Mobilier, which was named in French after a French uh, financing organization, and they were uh, they swindled the government out of a great many millions of dollars. Uh, Schuyler Colfax, the Speaker of the House was a uh, part of the credit mobilier. So the Union Pacific and Central Pacific got built. They got built at a big, big cost and with lots of shenanigans, but they got built. And then by May 10th, 1869, when both lines had built side by side over a number of miles, they finally agreed on where to meet, which was Promontory, Utah, uh, a promontory that sticks out into Great Salt Lake. And that's where the two lines came together on May 10th, 1869. And Leland Stanford was given the, the honor of driving the golden spike. And he swung the, the mallet at the spike and missed. <laughs> uh, the spike was connected by telegraph wire all over the country. And when they drove, they actually did drive the spike, uh, the impact of the spike was heard on the telegraph all across the country. And this was the... Great work 
of the 19th century in America, the equivalent of going to the moon in 1969, ironically, exactly 100 years later. The great, uh, the great transcontinental railroad. Now, nobody thought that there would be more than one transcontinental railroad, but within 15 years, there were two or three more. And ultimately, there were at least seven, depending on how you count. Scandals were not limited to the uh, transcontinental railroad. There were plenty of other scandals connected with the uh, railroad industry. Uh, after all, wherever there's money, you're going to find people who will do things to get it that are not necessarily kosher. And did you ever hear of Jay Gould? Uh, Jay Gould is probably, without peer, the robbingest of all the robber barons. The robber barons was, was the name Matthew Joseph, an historian, gave to the uh, unframmeled uh, capitalists of the post-Civil War era. Mark Twain called it the Gilded Age. Perfect, perfect uh, phrase. Well, Jay Gould uh, was involved in the Erie Railroad. We talked about the Erie before. Gould and his partners, Daniel Drew and Jim Fisk, got a hold of the Erie Railroad. And they started to milk it. They issued stock, which they printed out on a press in New Jersey to stay away from the New York legal authorities, and put it on the market. Now, Commodore Vanderbilt, the former steamboating man who was the head of the New York Central Line, wanted a monopoly on transportation in New York State, and he thought he'd buy these guys out from the Erie. So he bought Erie stock. Well, the more Vanderbilt bought, the more Gould and company printed. <laughs> and the whole story is told in a marvelous book called Chapters of Erie, by Charles Francis Adams and Henry Adams. Uh, Charles Francis Adams, Jr., the son of the American minister to London during the Civil War. And Henry Adams, who was, I believe, his cousin. Uh, Henry Adams later became famous as the man who wrote The Education of Henry Adams. They're all part of the John Adams family, descendants of John Adams. Uh, so Chapters of Erie recounts how Gould, Fisk, and Drew cheated Vanderbilt. Gould didn't stop there. He cheated Fisk and, and uh, Drew, too. Cheated his own partners. Uh, Gould made a huge fortune. Um, what's famous about it, compared to the similar fortunes being made at the same time by the Vanderbilts and by all these other robber barons, was not one cent of a Gould fortune ever went to charity of any kind. Gould made his huge fortune, died. His son got the fortune and spent all of it before he died. From poverty to uh, the peak of wealth to back to uh, pennilessness in two generations. Uh, one of the things that happened at this point, right after the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad, was the Panic of 1873. And it stopped construction of the railroads because there wasn't any money available for seven years or so, seven or eight years. So railroad construction came to a temporary halt. But afterwards, beginning about 1880, came the big boom. And then during that period, transcontinentals were built. The Santa Fe became a transcontinental line. The Northern Pacific, the Southern Pacific, all built to compete with the Union Pacific. And furthermore, uh, they were called the trunk lines. The trunk lines connected the East Coast with Chicago and St. Louis. The Granger lines headed in Chicago by Chicago capitalists, and they were built to haul grain, um, agricultural supplies, from the Midwestern grain fields to the markets in Chicago. So you had at least three major classifications of American railroads, the trunk lines, the Grangers, and the transcontinentals. America has never had a true transcontinental railroad in the sense of having uh, one railroad with uh, one management from the East Coast to the West Coast. The closest we come is the Southern Pacific, which is now part of the Union Pacific, which does touch the Gulf of Mexico with New Orleans, uh, but that's not the East Coast. It is a transcontinental. Uh, technically, it does touch, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is part of the Atlantic, but uh, it's not actually the Atlantic coastline. It doesn't, it doesn't touch the Atlantic coast. Canada, on the contrary, has two transcontinentals. The first one was the Canadian Pacific, which is still in business. The Confederation of Canada began in 1867 
when five provinces, four of them in the East and British Columbia, uh, agreed to form a new nation independent of Britain, former British colonies, Canada. Part of the deal was that British Columbia would be connected by rail with the East, and the company that built it was the Canadian Pacific. Ironically, the Canadian Pacific was built by Americans. Uh, even more ironic, the Great Northern, the last of the Great Northern uh, transcontinents in America, was built by a Canadian. <laughs> the border didn't make a lot of difference. All right, so there we have the story of what happened in the last 50 years of the 19th century. There's so much more talk about, I'm going to uh, put it off to uh, another date, but uh, I hope you've enjoyed what we've talked about tonight. I'll be happy to take questions and uh, make further comments if you have anything you want me to tell you about. Yes, I was just wondering, was the idea of just using the railways for general sort of passenger service, was that just kind of a secondary thing to... It has always been secondary. How did that come about? Yeah. Well, it's always been secondary in America because the United States has enormous resources and the movement of freight has always been primary. James J. Hill, who was the builder of the Great Northern, uh, said at one point that the, the passenger train is like a male teat, either useful nor ornamental. <laughs> the railroads never, with the very few exceptions, were never primarily passenger moved in this country. In Britain, it's the reverse, because Britain has short distances and a lot of, a lot of passenger traffic. American railroads were built over long distances, thinly populated, where passenger traffic was easily secondary to freight traffic. And, of course, the same is true today. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. This is Don. Uh, which of the – one of the railroads was electric, wasn't it? The northern – was it northern or Burlington? I always wondered, but it, it didn't burn coal. Oh, yes, it did. We're talking about the Burlington? Burlington Northern, uh, present BNSF. No, it's always been uh, always been coal-fired until the diesels came. Uh, what we have today is diesel electric locomotives. The only electrifications uh, in America were short, with the exception of the one great electrification in the east between Boston, now Boston, and Washington, and one in the west on the Milwaukee Road. The Milwaukee Road used electric power over the Cascade Mountains in Washington State and over the Rockies in Montana, but it was steam-powered everywhere else, and the two electric sections were not connected, so that they had to use a steam engine between two electric sections, and uh, the traffic never bore out the electrification, uh, and uh, the company eventually went bankrupt, and that whole track uh, west of uh, the Missouri River has been thrown up. But electrification has been primarily for passenger service in America and commuter lines. For example, the New York commuter lines are, are electrified. Philadelphia commuter lines are electrified. One of the Chicago commuter lines is electrified, but only one. Uh, electricity has been used over short distances, uh, through tunnels, for example, through cities uh, where smoke was a problem. But for the most part, the American railroads have always been first steam and now diesel-powered. And, of course, trolleys, I wrote through cities are electric, right? The trolley cars? Uh, yeah, well, trolley cars are electric, yes. Uh, yeah. Los Angeles had two systems, the yellow cars right. and the red cars. Red, red street car, I remember. Yeah. Uh, now, those two systems were, in large measure, the product of Henry Huntington, who was the nephew of Collis P. Huntington, one of the big four. Uncle Collis uh, had, of course, had a huge fortune. It's an interesting story. Uh, Collis B. Huntington, after California, moved east and uh, moved to New York, had a mansion on uh, Fifth Avenue. And when his wife died, he brought his mistress to the mansion and married her. Now, that was the one thing you weren't supposed to do. You were never supposed to marry your mistress. No. Uh, and Collis B. Huntington married his mistress and made the rest of the stock, uh, you know, the rest of the stock market uh, like it. You know, he was so powerful. Well, when he died, his widow, his former mistress, was Arabella Huntington. 
inherited half of Collis's fortune, and his nephew Henry had the other half. Well, Henry decided, let's keep it all in the family, and went out and married his uh, his uncle's widow. He did. He did that. So, yes. <laughs> if you if you go to the Huntington Museum in uh, San Marino today, uh, and you look at the, the paintings on the wall, you'll see a painting of Henry Huntington with the most battle-axe-looking old woman you ever saw, Arabella Worsham Huntington Huntington. <laughs> and Henry Huntington tripled his uncle's fortune by marrying it and then investing it in Southern California real estate. And then what he did was to build trolley lines to open up the developments. And then he sold the trolley lines to the Southern Pacific in 1911 and retired with his incredibly huge fortune. <laughs> Oh, my. Yes, I understand that Chicago is the hub of many railway systems. Uh, what oh, it is. The Chicago is the greatest rail center in North America and really the greatest in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's and your the reason? All, uh, railways, you know, do, do they, are, are they all coming in through there? Or what railways, you know, come in through there? Everything. Well, uh, today there are only six major North American companies five of which run into Chicago. Uh, but Chicago has uh, antecedents. They were something like 50 lines ran into the city of Chicago. You couldn't avoid Chicago no, see, no, because no. it was with a great traffic interchange between the West and the East. And also, uh, because of Lake Michigan, you couldn't bypass Chicago to the North. You had to come down through Chicago. And uh, only one line ever was built uh, directly from the east to west that didn't go through Chicago. And that line is now part of the Norfolk Southern between Detroit and Kansas City. Hmm. But everything else goes through Chicago. Well, Ira, again, thank you so much, and we'll, we'll be back again. We really look forward to these. And thank you, Engineer okay. Kurt. Thank you, thank very, you very much. Bye now. Keep, keep the recording for me. <laughs> Okay, bye. Got it.